Hello and welcome to the Safety and Quality Education Program podcast. Developed by Metro North Health Safety and Quality in partnership with the Clinical Skills Development Service, Metro North Health acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land upon we live, work and walk, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Safety and Quality Education Program has been designed with a focus on patient safety improvement, Each episode will explore ideas and stories in making our care delivery safer for our patients through the implementation of short notice accreditation. Our host is Dr. Mia McLanders, who is the manager of research at Clinical Skills Development Service. Mia is an applied researcher with a background in human factors and cognitive psychology. Joining Mia on this episode from Metro North Health is Janice Geary and Deb Stum. Janice is the Clinical Nurse Consultant Infection Management Service at TPCH. Janice has been working in a specialty of infections prevention for 25 years. Deb has an extensive experience as a patient and partner in her own healthcare and is an ongoing patient at TPCH. In this episode, our guests explore preventing and controlling healthcare-associated infection. Uh, Deb, what does standard three mean for you? in your direct experience as a consumer representative? Well, I think, you know, preventing and in, and controlling healthcare-associated infection, which is what Standard 3 is about, is, is critical. And so for me, I'm immune-suppressed. So whenever I'm in a hospital, it's something that I'm very mindful of, you know, things like hand hygiene, toilet hygiene, you know, that's just the patient experience. Um, and, you know, also of other patients' hygiene, which, you know, is often not... It can't be controlled in the same way as, you know, it can be for the staff. So, um, yeah, I think what it means to me is, is safety for patients when they're being cared for. And, you know, there are so many complex procedures and... Um, technical um, matters that underpin standard three. I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, I had no idea of all the different water quality measures, for example, but there are, yeah. So I guess for me, it means patient safety in in that, you know, actual physical sense of being safe from infection and preventing infection. And it's just, it underpins everything that happens to you in a hospital. Well, certainly we often joke and say, you know, when we became infection control specialists, I didn't also realise that I needed to be a plumbing expert and an air conditioning expert and a waste expert and a cleaning expert. And, you know, I've been from the absolute bottom of our hospital all the way through to the roof looking at things like water and air and, you know, how... Things move throughout the facility and, um, you know, coming from Prince Charles Hospital, I tell my foundation quite regularly that when I retire, Charlie's Angels, here I come because I know every part of the hospital and I'm great at front door to tell everyone where to go because of that. Um, and that's that's part of what we are with infection control. Um, so, you know, our role is, or my role as I see it every day, is that I want our patients and staff to come to our hospitals 
and I want them to not acquire any infections. And if by chance they come in with infection or they do acquire it, then not to transmit it either to another patient or to a staff member within this facility. So the role of Standard 3 is about protecting our patients but also protecting our staff because there is a big component around staff protection as well um, because we don't want staff acquiring infections during the course of their work um, on a day-to-day basis as well. Mm. So everything I do is about that main goal. And I think um, COVID really brought it home to the whole health system how you know how much how important preventing the spread of infection and viruses is you know when so many staff were were hit and how it affected the whole operation of the, mm. of the hospital you know that fewer um, operations or you know fewer op- there was a lot of planned health care and considered less critical but not necessarily to the people involved health care that had to be deferred and you know there were consequences for a lot of people and so this controlling that infection or that virus the spread of it just really opened everyone's eyes in the community to how those things can affect so many so many of our of those things we take for granted like education for example Mm. and health care and and also COVID COVID put a big focus on our staff yeah. And just, you know, the fact that they are critical. And so we need to protect them. We need them to feel comfortable enough to come to work. And healthcare workers are like any other person in the community. When you're dealing with a new infectious agent that you're unsure of and you're scared, you know, scared um, because not much is known, that's when they look to the infection prevention and control to give them that information, those policies and procedures, to um, give them the training associated so that they can confidently be able to go and care for these patients and feel that they're not going to be putting their own health at risk and not going to be then taking things home to their family and friends as well. So, you know, the first 12 months of the pandemic was about making sure that our staff had all those tools, that they could confidently come and still provide health care to our patients um, so that that was still available because whilst COVID came into the picture, nothing else left. So, you know, we still had people having heart attacks, we still had people needing other treatments and so we needed to look at how we manage COVID within that context of health care. And that's where we're, you know, in that transition phase now into that business as usual. COVID hasn't gone away, but we're now managing our COVID patients alongside our normal healthcare business Mm -hmm. and doing it safely for both the staff and also the other patients within the facility. That's true. Janice, uh, there was a, in 2014, there was a study published in BMJ Quality and Safety that showed uh, compliance rates were three times higher when auditors were in a healthcare facility. Um, compared to when they weren't after they'd left. I'm just wondering how you think that short notice accreditation might affect things like hand hygiene. Well, I think um, 
We do know when the focus is on something that healthcare workers are thinking about it um, more and so therefore it's forefront in their mind and so then they're more compliant. Healthcare workers don't come to work each day setting out to not do what they're asked to do. Um, But they're incredibly busy and they've got very stressful jobs and they're thinking about all the different components of all the different standards. And so part of you know, the role of anyone who has a big majority stake in a standard like Standard 3 is trying to get, you know, your things up in the forefront of staff's mind as they go about their day-to-day duties. So I think the fact that anyone can come in and um, be assessing them will keep that at a forefront um, and have them thinking about it. I also know that you know, the minute the assessors set foot in a hospital, great finds in hospitals work far better than anything else. And, you know, the entire hospital will know very quickly that they're there and that will get them, um, you know, thinking about those things that they need to be doing, uh, like hand hygiene, um, each and every day, but they'll be thinking about it a bit more. Mm. Um, So, you know, I don't think healthcare workers don't set out to not do it. They try and be compliant, um, you know, the majority of the time. So I found that very interesting when I became heard about the um, the highest non-compliance with hand hygiene is actually amongst the doctors, and I think you know, I think with standard three, yeah, there could be more of a role for consumers and patients to you know, initiate conversations with clinicians such as doctors about their hand hygiene. I mean, you know, I've had the experience where someone who's examining me doesn't wash their hands, but there hasn't been... There isn't a general message to patients that it's okay to ask for that. Anyway, most patients wouldn't feel comfortable doing that, but, you know, it is something I think is disturbing that the highest level of non-compliance is amongst doctors. Janice, how important are patients and families in as a line oh, of defence? Absolutely. And I think as the years go on, I think certainly um, health consumers are becoming far more educated. We are, you know, we do have lots of messages out there saying, you know, it's, a, you know, it's okay to ask staff to clean their hands. It is about confidence and, you know, being able to ask that question. Um, and we need to come up with new and innovative ways to support our consumers, whether it be patients or family, to ask those questions. Um, as a bit of a reminder, not as a negative thing, but, you know, as a positive thing. And um, also then seeing healthcare workers cleaning their hands gives a bit of confidence back to the patients and visitors themselves. Um, I do, however, understand that, you know, particularly... Um, visitors and family, you know, when you're being confronted with a sick relative or friend in a healthcare environment, it can be incredibly stressful to be that advocate. And, you know, I've been doing infection control for 20 plus years. And I'm very confident in saying that um, when my friends and family are in hospital, um, but I can say as a consumer, you know, when you're in pain, um, trying to understand what has happened to you, 
it's hard sometimes to voice up at that point. And yeah, and there is the power imbalance yeah. as well. So, yeah, it is It is something that, you know, hopefully will I think. I think we're slowly getting yeah. better. I think the younger people um, are probably more confident um, at, at asking healthcare workers to clean their hands. I think that's just sort of a generational thing. You know, there's not sort of this power of, oh, you can't ask a doctor that. Um, so I think change is happening, but it's still happening slower than I would like it. You know, I would love every patient, every consumer, um, every visitor to be asking staff that because that's that constant reminder and it's that sort of thing that changes can that reminder be a positive thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely, it can be a positive thing. Um, and, you know, it can also be a positive thing when they see them um, cleaning their hands, actually saying, oh, look, you know, thanks for cleaning your hands and keeping me safe as well. So they can do it positively um, and then they can also do it as a reminder. It's just whether or not it can be a positive thing as a clinician. When you do have a patient or a, a family member say to you, hey, do you mind just washing your hands? Like what's that experience like as as someone who's providing care? Um, look, I have never come across, you know, a clinician who'd be like, you know, defensive to that. Mm. Um, th- yeah, they might say, oh, look, I, I actually just did, but it was out, wasn't in front of you. Um, but most people would just go, oh, thanks, you know, and um, go and do it. We, as... A hand hygiene auditor. I am very regularly giving that feedback as we're auditing, um, and you know when we go and address staff with that, yeah, the majority of the time staff are very open to that reminder and that message and taking on board what where they missed um, their hand hygiene and how to change their practice. Uh, and I often say, you know, the whole aim behind the five moments of hand hygiene and when it was introduced as a World Health Organisation policy was around behavioural change and that's going to take decades to get um, completely ingrained within our healthcare workers' behaviour instead of being an actual thought, just an automatic behaviour that they do. So, you know, we're 13 years down the track here in Queensland and um, you know it's probably going to take another 30 or 40 years until like when we jump in a car and stick a seatbelt on we do it automatically when we go to a patient we clean our hands automatically without even thinking about it Mm. so um, you know I think on a whole healthcare workers are very open and um, thankful for that reminder So, Deb, your experiences with um, hospital-acquired infection, do you have anything to sort of share or add about that? Uh, personally, I don't, but um, my partner's father, he, you know, was elderly and in hospital and he acquired a really bad infection, which, you know, took him to his death. It wasn't in a public hospital, though. But, um, yeah, it's something I'm very aware of. Mm-hmm. I see... Um, yeah, that it's one of the critical things as a patient that you want to feel confident about. But there's other things, you know, in standard three that have an impact on me as a patient. And it's things like 
cleanliness, you know, the cleaning of my room, for example, if I was an inpatient, you know, that's really important. And another, th- and something that I, you know, ways that patients can secure cleaning, that's something I've brought up at the meeting because, you know, I've been, say, a patient where you're sharing a bathroom and someone makes a mess and, or you go to a toilet when you're, you're an outpatient and the bathroom cleanliness is, or there's a leaking tap. So, you know, that really impacts on, on patients, the, the actual cleaning of the facility. And, um, and also the environment does. I mean, you don't want to catch inf- infection. So feeling safe, safe is really important, you know, particularly for immune-compromised people because if you're in a hospital and you're next to someone who's coughing, that's a major... Mm. You know, that's a very big issue. It's a big issue for anyone, but, I mean, if I'm on a bus and someone's coughing, I immediately move, and I've done that for six years. So Mm. it's just ingrained in me to be quite terrified. You know, I found it really hard last time I came to the Prince Charles that we we had to line up at reception. It was a very big line, and a lot of the patients weren't... Some of them weren't wearing masks and some were coughing, but there was no way you could not stand next to them and they'd move closer to you. Things like that really affect me. That hygiene, you know, it's more like air hygiene. When was one? Of, when was the last time that you felt safe? Uh, can you recall a time in a health service? Oh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm used to it now. Yeah. And say, always wear a mask. Like I was here the other day for another purpose and I just rushed through wearing a mask. Um, I mean, people don't have to wear a mask now, so doesn't really matter but um yeah I just you, ha- you can't only be responsible for yourself and I think um the hospital staff do the best they can but you can't control patients behavior hmm. and you know they can be quite unhygienic and uncaring about others around them hmm. and you just have to accept that and not focus on it so I just focus on my own preventative measures and I think the pandemic has helped us a lot in that, in yeah. that, you know, um, seeing a patient or a visitor or a staff member wearing a mask is not unusual now. Mm. If we would have gone back to, you know, um, prior to 2020, mm. you know, that people would be giving you strange looks and staring as you at yeah. you as if to go, well, why have you got a mask on? Where now it's far more accepted and even, you know, now that we're in this COVID business as usual model and it's, you know, it's not mandatory, there's a lot of um, people still wearing masks. And as an infection control consultant, you know, we have asked our staff, you know, as we head into these winter months um, to highly encourage them to put masks back on for their own health, but um, also for the health of their patients and their visitors that they see each day, but also as a caring measure for their staff, their colleagues, because we know sick leave at this time of year is um, can be quite extensive and it's hard to backfill and uh, there's all those issues of then trying to get the staff to be able to fill your shifts and so forth. And a simple act of putting on a surgical mask can prevent you from getting that illness and at the moment we're seeing the big three you know influenza rsv or 
respiratory synaptical virus, which is why we call it RSV, <laughs> um, and also COVID. So, you know, we're see- all the hospitals are seeing increasing numbers of those respiratory viruses. So it's actually very nice as I walk around clinical areas now, seeing an increased wearing of masks across staff patients and visitors because of that. Um, I know um, staff and the general public can get fatigued with wearing masks, but I think healthcare workers have become very used to it and um, they feel quite comfortable wearing it and nobody stops and asks them why they're wearing it. You know, they know that if they want to, they can and um, then they elect to and that's great. That's excellent. Mm. Yeah. Um, but but I, I agree with Deb, you know, look, We've talked about hand hygiene, we've talked about masks, but, you know, Standard 3 covers lots of the different components to prevent that um, transmission of infection. So, you know, cleaning and the environment is a big one, disposing of our sharps and our waste appropriately, Um, you know, managing our linen appropriately, you know, dirty linen going in and out of the facility, Uh, you know, down to you know the reprocessing of our reusable medical devices um also you know making sure when we have invasive devices so whether that be an iv or an idc or a drain of any sort that they're managed so that um, we don't contaminate them and we don't spread infection and then probably something that maybe clinicians on the floor don't have as acute an understanding of is all the surveillance systems that are going on um, that oversee those the tracking of those infections and so a major role of the work we do in our department is that surveillance and we're constantly looking for those triggers to go hang on that's more infections than we would normally see or that's more of that organism that we would normally see in that area what's going on there so that we can then go and investigate and find out why we're seeing this trigger why are we seeing this increase? And then we can proactively put in place steps to stop that from happening. And, you know, we collect multiple sets of surveillance um, and that is ongoing monitoring. Um, we also look at new technologies. So through COVID, the general public learnt a whole lot about whole genome sequencing, which is a way to map the organism's DNA. Um, and we now use that a lot more to in our normal everyday surveillance. And so then if we get a drug-resistant organism and its whole genome sequence, and it's similar to a, um, another one that's been in the hospital. There may have been months in between, but that's a trigger for us to go and look at, well, hang on, is it in the environment somewhere? Um, you know, doing environmental screening to see whether we can find it. Is it contaminated drains? Is it contaminated sinks? And so actually looking for where that organism may be so we can eliminate that so that more patients don't get that organism. So, And I suppose when we talk about clinicians and standards re and SNAP accreditation, sometimes I think that's what can scare clinicians because they don't have a great understanding of all of those programs that we're doing 
you know, their line managers might, but the, you know, the nurse or the RMO on the floor might not have a great understanding of that. But as I say to them when I answer those questions, um, it's, you know, Sorry. <laughs> um, it's, it's not about having to know everything. It's about having to know where could I find that information if I wanted it. And, you know, I think people get put on the spot and, you know, their mind goes a bit blank and they sort of go, oh, I don't know. And I often say to them, you know, I don't know is not the best answer, but just think about it. You know, if you wanted to know something about infection control, who would you call or who would you go and ask? And that's the answer that you give the assessors. You go, oh, look, I can't tell you that, but my resource people are, you know, my standard three resource person on the ward, or it might be I go directly to my line manager or policy and procedure, or I'll call the infection control department and talk to them about my concerns here. So it's about them realising that they don't know need to know absolutely everything of every standard. And as I quite honestly say to them, I can probably read them standard three um, from my brain because I've been doing it for so long but don't ask me too much about other standards I will give you that answer you know if you ask me about blood management I'd go oh well I'd ring my blood coordinators and I'd talk to them about that issue Um, so I think you know as clinicians we shouldn't be scared of the assessors but we also should stop and instead of just quickly going I don't know go oh well hang on if this was a normal every day, who would I t- ask to find out that information? Are there specific things around infection prevention and control that typically trip people up during accreditation? Um, I think it might be, is probably a little bit about the surveillance and, you know, the surveillance programs that we have and maybe the um, line of how infection control, you know, those governance systems, you know, how it gets reported up. Because it's, it's line managers or it's a representative that might be on the committee and it might go to a committee that an RN on a ward doesn't have any involvement with. Um, but again, the line managers will know that and that's um, their answer. Um, when it's something about other departments, you know, um, certainly like um, sterilising, you know, so if a question's asked about, you know, sterile equipment uh, and the reprocessing of reusable medical devices, well, our central sterilising departments or our endoscopy units, if it's about scopes, are the ones who understand all that and know it really well. But again, if you're, clini- you're a clinician or you're an admin officer in area, you're not expected to know all about the sterilising standard. But if you work in a central sterilising department, well then yes, you're expected to have a great, far greater knowledge on that standard and what requirements need to be in place. Um, so I think for generally people in a clinical area, um, you know, obviously, yes, you, they would expect you to know your hand hygiene compliance for your ward. Um, they would expect you to be able to talk to them about cleaning, about what to do if they got an occupational exposure injury, how they would go about reporting that, how they would go about identifying a patient who might have a multi-resistant organism. 
um, and how they would isolate them and what signs they would put up, what information they would give to the patient if they were placed under isolation and where to find that, you know, on our computer systems they could print out that patient information sheet and be able to give them that information. So they're those, you know, direct things that all clinicians should know about to us to be able to do their day-to-day it's more those higher level sort of what are our surveillance programs the governance systems that run within the hospital that they may not have you know that 100 percent knowledge about but where to go and find that if you needed that information sounds very achievable yeah and i think in some of those um procedures that you've talked about you know there's there is a role for a consumer, and I, what what springs to mind was at the standard three committee, the there was a procedure about PIVCs, peripheral in, intravenous cannulations, um, which you know the punter who's getting them all the time in hospital calls cannulas usually. Um, yeah, and I, and the research shows with that that a lot of you know there's quite a high percentage that are just um, just in case rather than needed and I think um, for a for a patient the fewer cannulas you have the better from a discomfort point of view but from the health system the infection pre- prevention side of things the fewer there are the, f- the smaller the risk of infection so that was something that I could contribute to a discussion about that due to my experience, you know, as a, as a patient. I think um, sometimes the sort of procedure can forget about the patient in its roller coaster. This is what you do, blah, blah, the person comes in, they get this, they, this happens, and infection isn't, is prevented or it's, there is an infection, but if it's not, uh, if, I mean, there's a lot of low value care and that's another way of avoiding infection not providing low value care but that's a bigger picture than just standard three I think. Oh and absolutely and you know around the um, peripheral intravenous cannulas you know one of the I think it's actually a step one of the clinical care standard is to assess the need for Mm. a peripheral intravenous cannula and step two is to talk to your patient and I think Sometimes within healthcare as clinicians, because it's something we do all the time, it becomes very normal and it's not normal for the patient to come in. So, you know, just going up and saying, I'm going to put a cannula in you, that's not consumer input and that's not talking to the consumer about your cannula. So, you know, there needs to be that change in, you know, going, right, well, the doctors ask that you have a cannula inserted or I'm you know I need to put a cannula and we're going to use it for this part of your treatment this is why you need it this is what we're going to do have you had any previous experiences with cannulas because that's a number one question because that helps us identify if you have difficult access um, and then once it's in this is how you can care for it you know, if you see any of these issues, alert the staff that it's hurting or um, that it feel, you know, it's getting hot um, or it looks red. Uh, so going through that exp- actual explanation 
with the patients is really important and a key part of that new clinical care standard where sometimes because we just do it all the time, we forget about all those little steps. Same with when patients get... um, my words went then um when patients get prescribed antibiotics you know the main part around our antimicrobial stewardship programs is about explaining to the patient why you're going to be on these antibiotics what side effects there may be how long you should be on them you know um so again that that, that's that simple explanation and explaining the care that is happening to the patient so that they can advocate and, um, you know, they can have that information. And they're just examples from standard three and there'd be examples for each and every standard where, you know, as a patient, we need to be really involved in our care. And, you know, I often, when I'm doing anything with healthcare or my family and friends, uh, that I'm that person asking heaps of questions and sometimes I think, oh, it's just because I'm a healthcare worker. Uh, but I think it's as a healthcare worker, I understand the importance of knowing that information. And, you know, um, so as my family interact with healthcare, I'm on the end of the line going, but what did they say about this? And did you ask them about this? And, and you know, these are the questions you should you know, need to be asking. And I think all of us need to be doing that um, as patients and as staff, we need to be preempting that for the patient because if they don't understand to ask those questions, they may not. But if we're giving them that information, they then come away far more informed about the care that they're getting. Yeah, so that you know that makes a lot of sense. I think sometimes, though, in the main, it's just done as a matter of course. Mm. It certainly has been to me. But um, yeah, it, yeah, it's easy enough. For to ask the question if you're able to and that depends on how sick you are and if you're by yourself and other there's a lot of factors that impact on it I think that that sort of when we were looking at the consent form it you know it had a a sort of mandatory requirement well I don't know that I've ever been asked for consent for a, a cannula so I found that quite interesting and I think it's probably unnecessary in that you know quite often people are given them when they're not able to give consent or they don't have a fam- someone there, a support person. So, yeah. yeah, I think you have to be realistic about some of those things because it's yes, going to be, if it's an emergency, you get it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's sometimes that, you know, um, the emergence need of, the inf- of what's happening means that they need to... But even still, you can, you know... Even in an emergency situation, you can still be caring for the patient Mm. and say, you know, we're just putting this cannula in. We need that to be able to get the IV access so that we can treat what is happening um, within their health care. But I think one of the really good parts of the national national standards is that it is incorporating the consumer participation Mm. in each and every standard. And that's a big change I've found over my 20 plus years of infection control is we're doing, you know, we're focusing a lot more on ensuring that the consumer is involved in all steps. And I think that's a positive point to the standards. And, you know, I think having a consumer on the standard three committee is very important, even though a lot of the discussions are highly technical and and 
about very technical matters like water quality and air quality and how they're measured and a lot of data. But there are things that, that come up where a consumer voice is really important. And I'll just give you an example. At the last meeting we had, it was mentioned that there was going to be a pandemic plan. Well, there, there's, there's work now being done at Metro North on the pandemic plan for future pandemics. And so, I, you know, my role then is to ask, well, is a consumer involved? I knew that one wasn't because I hadn't seen any invitation for anyone to be and be involved. Usually they come around through the same source. So, you know, there hadn't, there wasn't, or that had to be checked on. And I think that that's where it shows there's, you know, more capacity than sometimes clinicians are aware of to involve consumers in Standard 3 because there are areas like those Metro Northwide plans for something like a pandemic that where a consumer voice is highly important. I mean, I'm speaking because I also was the consumer rep on the Metro North um, incident management team for COVID. So although a lot of that was very operational and procedural and there wasn't a lot of things that a consumer, well, I felt there were that the consumer voice there was important, but it wasn't necessary every, if it, the meeting was every day, but there were other, there were contributions that could be made by, the, by a consumer. But in a pandemic plan, that's really important that consumers are involved. Hmm. And certainly, yeah, I'm not saying we're perfect, but no. there's room, always room for improvement. But, you know, we've gotten a lot better at, you know, having that consumer input. And I know just locally at Prince Charles, you know, we've had a consumer on our Infection Control Now Standard 3 Committee, we changed the name, um, for oh, probably about five, six years now. It's, um, it, we've had a long standing with multiple consumers over the time and we find their input valuable um, quite often because it's something we deal with and you know, manage and there are issues that have come back you know, multiple times, you know, um, we maybe don't see what the consumer does see. So their input in our committee has been highly valued since they've been involved. Um, and that's why we continue to, when one consumer is unable to do it any, or get um, mm. another consumer. And f for a few months until um, one of our consumers was unable to continue, we had two. So we've gone from one to two just to get that a different point of view again. So I think we still need a lot more involvement, um, but it is something that we are getting better at and can only improve further as we get more involvement. Yeah, I think it's all very positive because there wasn't one mm. on the Metro North wide um, Standard 3 committee until a few years ago. So the fact that there now is one and, and that they're very responsive, the committee, to um, consumer input is really a big change, you know, moving a progress. And I think, you know, there will be further progress as well. I mean, another thing that concerns me as a, as a patient is the level of waste and the environmental impact on that. Now, you know, now we've got climate change and that's something that you know, that is, um, you know, a lot of people in the community are, are concerned about. And I know that the health service is 
is progressing improvements in the environmental impact of of healthcare and particularly in relation to standard three. So that's another positive area that you know I've learnt about through being involved. But I do think that's in its fairly early days, and hopefully we'll become zero net zero <laughs> at some point in time. It'll have to be. It's a good plan. 2050, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Infection control's not very good at getting it to net zero. Because <laughs> <laughs> our, our waste has particular, in, in, you know, requirements. Yeah. Oh, I understand. But, um, you know, certainly recycling has a large focus and there is a lot of very dedicated healthcare workers at all sites in trying to increase our level of recycling and what can be done mm. is being done so, Janice, what do you see as the future of healthcare, preventing and controlling healthcare associated infection? Um, so, I think, you know, COVID is not going to be our first and only pandemic that we see. Um, I think, you know, new, new viruses and bacteria are always starting to um, show and affect our patients and our role with standard three and also with being infection prevention and control programs is to be able to adapt quickly and to address the issues as they're happening so whether that be a pandemic or whether that be a new multi-resistant organism mm-hmm. um, that patients have been tested for. Also looking at and utilising the new technologies that are coming out and about in regards to testing, such as our whole genome sequencing, and using those appropriately so that um, we can address the situations as they're happening. Um, I think... You know, as a whole, we continue with a lot of our behavioural change programs um, and training programs around hand hygiene and multi-resistant organisms. Um, I think, you know, for infection control, you know, we keep doing what we know, but being um, able to change and rotate um, for what is new and um, incoming uh, on the on the horizon I suppose is a a way to put it because um, it might be COVID two years ago it might be a new strain of influenza in a couple of years it could be a different antibiotic resistant pathogen or resistance in some of our other diseases Um, I think there's a lot that can be done as we move forward in health with new buildings and redevelopments. Um, COVID has certainly changed that landscape. It's made us think about air conditioning so much more and how we actually lay out our units, how we transport patients through hospitals who may be infectious. So I think there has been so much learnt and it's a really exciting time as we go into building new builds and I'm lucky lucky enough at Prince Charles that we have a new build coming up and um, so part of that planning, you know, infection control is involved from day zero to make sure that we're building the best facilities prop, uh, that we can that will prevent and control those infections when they come. 
and you know have us well set for the future for what may be causing us issues.